I'm Toya Nash Randall, curator and catalyst of the multimedia narrative platform Voice Vision Value. This month marks the third anniversary of Voice Vision Value, and I'm excited to announce my newest partnership with nationally respected philanthropist, community leader, and entrepreneur Shonda Smith Baker. Sponsored by Voice Vision Value, Centering Conversations is a new exclusive segment of the award-winning podcast Conversations with Shonda. We're releasing new episodes every Wednesday during Black Philanthropy Month, and the premiere drops today with Shonda and I discussing our partnership, our years-long friendship, the new Voice Vision Value book, Portraits of Us, and the who, how, why, and a little bit of the what it takes to honor, serve, and partner with intention as leaders in the field. Be sure to check out the full suite of Centering Conversation interviews this month, where Shonda talks to Angel Robertson Daniel, Tashawn Macon, Kiana Thomason, and Coneal Mack. Beginning in September, Centering Conversations will drop every third Wednesday of the month. If you want to know more about Voice Vision Value, check us out at voicevisionvalue.org, where you can also read the Twin Cities chapter of the forthcoming book, Portraits of Us. Toya Randall, Voice Vision Value, I am so pleased to be with you and very excited to be entering the month of August with you. It is a month that has been announced to support Black people in philanthropy. And here we are relaunching a series featuring Black women in philanthropy called Centering Conversations. Yes, happy Black Philanthropy Month and shout out to Sister Jackie Carson Bouvier, who is the founder of Black Philanthropy Month. So, you know, another Black woman doing big things in the world to celebrate our culture and our legacy and our tradition of giving uh, to one another and to the broader body of humanity. So happy to be with you relaunching, reframing, reimagining together, which is what we've been doing for years. So this is the next the next level of that. Well, thank you. And I love where we landed with Centering Conversations, which is, again, just a new iteration of work that has been here before us. Absolutely. And playing forward from a report that you did called Centering Ourselves, which I thought was a fantastic uh, report on Black women in philanthropy. Um, will you share just a little bit about that? Yeah, we released Centering Ourselves um, in 2021. Every year we try to do something big in Black Philanthropy Month. So we'll be doing something big in 2023 that we'll talk about later. But Centering Ourselves was the first in a series of reports that carves out the unique you know, experiences and contributions that Black women in the sector uh, encounter, sort of leading the field at the intersection of gender, race, and class. Dr. Jessica Baron is our lead researcher, and she's now working on the second report in the Centering Ourselves series, uh, which will highlight philanthropic organizations that have had consecutive Black women CEOs, and the perspective of trustees and the women themselves uh, sort of stepping into that role for the first time and then being succeeded by another Black woman. And what are those lessons? Um, what does it look like to support Black women at the CEO level? Um, what is the legacy that we preserve and sustain as we pass the baton one to another? Um, and just the unique you know, profile of, of their stories because it is not a common occurrence for, you know, institutions across any sector, not just philanthropy, to, to have, you know, multiple Black leaders over a series of decades. So the, the report will look at three institutions over the past 20 years that have had consecutive Black women CEOs. So that's the second installment and the the um, idea for the third installment and that will come out in 2025 will take a look back at black women who were who were and may still be in positions as chief equity officers uh, in philanthropic institutions right over a five year from 2020 to 2025 and what what is the what does that body of work look like what what of that work has been sustained what of that work has been left behind we already see 
some retrenchment in the field, right? So there was a rally to hire these, these chief equity officers in the wake of all the things that made 2020 a historic year. And many of those people are not in those positions anymore. And there's been some shifting uh, and some reframing and refocusing, as we said earlier, um, but not always in positive and, and meaningful ways to advance equity and inclusion. And so we'll spend some time talking to those women um, about what they've learned and what the field, what the field could and should be doing, or what the field should and should not be doing, right? Um, so that that will be the third and final installment in the series. Toya, how long have you been in philanthropy? Uh, I I came to my first job in the sector um, in 2020 at a private foundation. Before that, I ran a nonprofit organization, New Spirit Neighborhood Organizing Office, uh, in my hometown of East St. Louis. So, in the in the philanthropic space as a grant maker, twenty three years. Wow! You don't have to make that face. <laughs> that's a long. That's a mighty long time. It's a mighty long time. That's a mighty long time. I mean, I asked that question because you know, there's there's an arc here in terms of there's the lessons that the field has learned, but what are some of the lessons that you have learned? What are some of the observations that you have learned in in this sector? I have been extremely fortunate. In 23 years, I've worked for two philanthropic organizations, one regional and, and now a national foundation. And over the course of that time, um, I have had the the luck, the blessing, the good fortune to be supported and and nurtured by a a pretty remarkable community of leaders and partners. Um, and I think the lesson for me personally has really been around how do I shift the work that is important external to me in my role in the field and in my role supporting others in the field. But what does it look like to internalize those values, to internalize those practices and behaviors and attitudes in a way that truly demonstrates philanthropy and community, sisterhood and sponsorship um, as a way of being? You know, you and I have talked about this um, in community with other women. I, I go to work every day in a job for, for the sole purpose, in many ways, to, to feed my family and to take care of myself, right? That's why we work. But then to be able to do work that has a deeper meaning, that can sort of stimulate and catalyze other sort of ideas and passions and pathways to creativity is a huge privilege. And so I try my best um, to sort of take those those privileges and those benefits and those good fortunes and to sort of embody them in a way that demonstrates a leadership position that moves beyond the performance, moves beyond the words and moves beyond the external, if that makes any sense, right? 23 years, I've seen a lot. I've made a lot of mistakes um, and I've, I've benefited a lot. And at this point, it's it's like, what is... What what have I what have, what have I gained? What have I learned? And now, how does all of that shape how I demonstrate a philanthropic spirit in everything that I do? Whether that's with my kid, with my partner, in my family, in my community, because really that is the spirit of our ancestors. That is the spirit of so many of the leaders whose legacies we honor and celebrate. And so how do we move beyond the words and the accolades to the actual being and the doing of the work in that spirit in, in a very intentional and sustainable way? So how do you move beyond sort of the, the technical side of philanthropy, the, the spirit? How do you embody the spirit? You use the word sponsorship. What does that mean in the way that you embody that? For me, it means I have had, you know, so many folks who have seen possibility and promise in my ability as a leader. They they saw it before I could see it. 
and they invested um, in in me and and afforded me opportunities to develop and you know um, grow and ex- have experiences that um, you know move me beyond whatever place or position I was in. Um, you know, I think about when I first came to the field, I had a job as a grants. My job was a, as a grants manager, um, but my boss at the time, you know, she she made space for me in the boardroom. She made space for me in meetings with other executives. So I got to learn and sort of grow my thinking and my imagination around what philanthropy what it what it could do and what I could do as a person working in a philanthropic organization. Um, and so I try my best to afford others those kinds of opportunities because as we advance and as we you know have greater access to resources and to influence and to relationships, um, how do I make space? How do I create room? Um, to be a sponsor, to be a supporter of others in the ways that others have done that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and voice vision value is, I, I would I would say um, that is that is what is you know most centered in the work that voice vision value is producing. This partnership that you and I are, are developing around you stepping in to lead these conversations and co, you know, co-develop the Centering Conversations brand um, and movement together is a is another, I think, example of that, right? I've, I've, I've done the Woman Crush Wednesday series for the past three years, and I think it's time for a new voice, a new framing, a new opportunity um, for women to engage differently in these conversations with you and there's so much more of that that we can do together and with one another um, in different roles that we have across the sector and just across community, right? It's it's not even just unique to philanthropy. There's so much more sharing, you know, co-fill in the blank that we could be doing, co-facilitating, co-creating, um, co-shaping and developing. There is enough. And sometimes the moment comes where we can provide an opportunity for others to step in and take the thing to the next level. And for me, I think, you know, you will take this to a whole different level. Thank you. I have a bundle of emotions and I have like four different ways that I want to take this conversation, but I'm going to go with the one that we're on, which is about sharing space. Sometimes you're sharing and sometimes it's a baton. Right. Because, you know, you've taken it as far as you can go. We have both lived enough life and led long enough to know that we have both experienced. Community that has embraced. And we've also had moments where we're like, man, share some like like there's enough (laughs) space for everyone. Right. Like there is a purpose and plan for each of us. You know, when when you are raised and when you understand that often many of us are in, you know, in roles where we are the first, the only, or the few, and we're isolated in that, sometimes it is hard to think about sharing space or your identity becomes attached to being the first, the few, and the only. So what has sharing space given to you if someone is listening and has been challenged by that? Wow. I, you know, I've never thought about what it's given to me. Um, I, I think more than anything, it, it gives me so much joy, Jonda, quite honestly, um, to, you know, be able to dream and scheme with like-minded people and then for whatever the thing we dreamed of together to come to fruition you know there's there's just joy in all of that right so to then get to a place where i feel like 
I can offer something different somewhere else and in a different space, but that you would even say, yes, I will, I will partner with you to carry this forward. So that it, I, I think it's equally as important to look for and seek out opportunities to share space, to share those resources, whatever those things are. But then to be able to do that with someone who will receive what you're offering, right? Um, with as much joy and with as much commitment to carrying it forward in the same spirit for which it was created. So I think trusting oneself is critically important. Uh, and I, I've always said, if you don't trust yourself, you can't trust others. And so if we're all, we're so busy holding on to things because we think we're the only ones who can hold it and care for it and nurture it. Um, I think that's true up to a certain point. It's like with your kids, right? Like they're born into the world and, and they need a level of care and protection that changes over time. My son is 13. And so it's a, it's a letting go every, with every developmental stage, you're letting go because they can't fly and thrive and discover who they're meant to be if we don't let go. And so I would say the same thing is true for institutions, for bodies of work. Um, We've got to let go. We've got to sort of expand who's in the room with us. There's a whole community of folks that support me and his father and taking care of him. But we got to let him go into that community. I got to let him go down to East St. Louis and be with the family for a couple of weeks a summer and just be like, okay, that's what y'all doing today. <laughs> you taking him to the John DeShields? All right. That's the housing development that I grew up in, right? But I got to trust that those same people who kept me safe, who nurtured me, who, who loved on me will do the same. And I've got to trust that you who supported me and nurtured me and loved on me in this work will take this where it's supposed to go. And I'll, I got to go find something else to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. You know, the, the, the piece that um, the second piece is I actually can feel my eyes sort of welling up a little bit. So I, I don't know. I must must be emotional Monday or something as I'm recording this, but thinking about just my entry point um, into philanthropy and you reaching out to sponsor me into Black Women in Philanthropy Retreat and all the moments that we've had where we've shared space, where we've shared community, where I've wrestled through, you've wrestled through, and we've shown up for each other. That for me, it's the iron sharpens iron, right? That like leading by yourself, you can be good, but leading in this community that has, um, that, that cares for your success just makes you better, it, that it's not competitive in an unhealthy way. Absolutely. And I, you know, there's that saying, like, as long as your, your hands are closed and you're holding on to a thing, you can't receive anything else because you're closed and, and sort of shut, shut off to the rest of what is available and, and, and possible for you. Um, and so it's the joy of creating, it's the joy in sharing. And then there's this sort of the joy and curiosity around then what what it what will now come right mm -hmm. um, as a result of um, new and new space being created because this this one thing has been released or transferred over to another person to another partner I think is is another way to think about it if we're always holding on to what we got then we're not open to what else may be out there for us to receive and explore right on to that. So you've mentioned voice, vision, value. I've mentioned voice, vision, value. What is the origin story of this thing called voice? Vision? <laughs> yeah, so the origin story, nine, 10 years ago, um, there was an idea to create 
or an idea to bring to fruition many others' ideas to your point, right, around how we share space and how we sort of partner in the ownership of things. Um, there, there have been lots of talk about creating a retreat space for Black women in philanthropy. And so I was on the board of APFI at the time, at the Association of Black Foundation Executives. I was a chair of the board. Um, and my coach, Eva Montalvo, had been working with me around being really intentional about what, about legacy, and that at, at, at any moment, you should be thinking about what is your legacy is not something to consider, that others should consider when you're dead. They're talking about your legacy, and then your legacy is you went to this school, or you got this award, or you had this job. <laughs> um, and so... You know, at that point, I had been in the sector about 12, 13 years and again, had this sort of beautiful um, experience over time of women and people supporting me and sponsoring me and, and, and investing in me. So as board chair, along with other women, Susan Taylor Badden, Gladys Washington, Karen McNeil Miller, uh, myself, Sharice uh, West Scantleberry, uh, and Danny Johnson, who runs a events planning business. We all got together to sort of plan uh, and organize the first ever women in philanthropy retreat. And so that community began convening once a year. And I would say the the sort of energy, the spirit right behind that intention to convene women in a safe space, to unpack and explore all the things that makes this work so fulfilling but challenging at the same time. And the unique aspects of that, that we sort of encounter as black women. So, so much joy and, and beauty and lots of tears um, came out of those spaces. And it just started to create this curiosity for me around what what are other spaces that can be created for this community? As my career, you know, continue to advance and my connections to women across the country and somewhat in some cases internationally continue to expand, um, I realized that Black women were the largest community of professionals, people of color uh, in the sector. And so I partnered with, with Susan at AppFi to produce an issue of uh, AppFi magazine at the time focused on Black women in philanthropy. So there was the retreat, and then there was this special issue of AppFi magazine that I wrote and curated. And then once the magazine was done and it was well-received, we were continuing to do the retreats. I, I was like, this, is, this still doesn't feel like enough. So the idea to produce a book about Black women in philanthropy um, was, was the next sort of conversation Susan and I had with um, the commitment of producing the book and then all proceeds being donated to APFI. Um, and the goal was to, to complete that project by the 50th anniversary of APFI, which was uh, 2021, and, and sort of release the book in connection with that. So I got busy developing the concept for the book in late 2019. And then COVID hit, world stopped. But at that point, so much, there was so much enthusiasm around the book, the idea for a book, and lots of good information and data had been gathered through interviews and, you know, sort of a lit review. So while we were sort of holding our breaths uh, in the spring of 2020, um, waiting for this thing, called COVID to be over, Voice Vision Value was born as a platform to hold space in the meantime for finishing this book. And from that, you know, fast forward three years, we have the report series, we have these online conversations, we have all expense pay retreats for women in the sector. I think one of the most sort of important things that I realized in the last year, this is the fourth sort of pillar that has been added and it goes back to our earlier point in the conversation, serving as a conduit, right? And, and a sponsor for black women in the sector 
to have access to resources and relationships that will fuel their their work mm-hmm. and the institutions that they lead and the visions that they have for their leadership. That was kind of a thing that was happening in an ad hoc way in three years. $1.5 million has been secured and resourced to and through Black women-led initiatives across the country uh, as a result of the advocacy and the positioning and the sharing of space that uh, I've been able to do through Voice Vision Value. And so that has been uh, one of the most surprising, I think, proudest parts of this of this work. But again, I, I often say I couldn't do any of it without Black women, right? And that's Black women investing invoice vision value or to reinvest in other Black women-led initiatives and efforts or supporting it through voice vision value. And that's exciting. And so this is the latest, right? This, this thing that we're doing together is just another example of that, uh, of how VVV can be a, again, a conduit for um, resourcing and getting the resources to efforts led by Black women. So then, so the book was supposed to come out. So what, what's the update on the book then? So the book is done. The e-copies are available on uh, voicevisionvalue.org for folks across the field and across the world to dig into. We've printed 1,500 limited edition copies that will be made available at philanthropic convenings beginning this fall and through next spring. And yeah, it's 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 beautiful. I I am so grateful to you and the other 13 co-curators across the country who convene networks of black women in nine cities. Over 200 women participated. So there are beautiful images in each chapter, but then each chapter ends with a collage of all the photographs that the photographers took. Um, at each of the convenings. So I hope everybody can see themselves in in these pages and connect with the stories and the sort of, you know, notes of wisdom and and the lessons that women have shared because there's so many threads of connection across the pages. And so I think in some ways we we are helping to demystify this field. We're helping to sort of break down these feelings of isolation and the othering that can happen. We are the only or one of the few uh, or the last, the last woman standing. There are so many, I think, important sort of words throughout these pages to reassure women and, and anyone who's reading this as they are leading work in this sector. You know, for me, Right. One of the co-curators. So let's just talk about the structure of it, first of all. Right. Because, again, I think this is just. Being right, the being of the work, the doing of the work, the, the illustration of what we've been talking about. So you use the network of black women across the country. Um, leverage brought into community to make this book happen. So there's co-curators, there's photographers and writers, all Black women. And all Black women funding the project. So it's a scaffolding of our sort of collective power. And I had the idea, but it could not have come to fruition to what it is today. The pages of this book that we cannot hold in our hands and hold in our hearts. If Black women who were invited to be a part of this. And that so it goes back to what I was saying earlier, right? Like I can extend the invitation, which is a lot of fun to dream and scheme. And this is what we're going to do. But then when women say yes, and then they do it. And because, you know, you and Cameron out in LA and Tracy and Kiana, who you'll have later this month in Kansas City, I, I didn't know all of them women. Those are y'all's women in y'all's networks and in y'all's sister circles uh, locally and regionally. I trust you and then they trust you. And what we have, right, mm-hmm. is now this beautiful demonstration of love and trust and support of one another as a community from the writers to the photographers to the co-curators 
and even the design team, the cover was designed by a black woman. It is, it is, and it was inspired by a black woman, right? So it really is this beautiful collection of all of our ideas and creativity. I love it. You know, sometimes we over-focus, hyper-focus on the end, right? When is the release date? When is the book coming out? What's on the pages of the book? What are the stories? But I have to tell you the process itself and um, to your point, when you feel isolated in the work or you don't realize the community that exists, mm-hmm. right? The openness of this community and what what I took from it is the number of women, Black women, that need the support of other Black women that are navigating spaces in which their very presence is minimized and reduced or, and, or they are navigating things that, that uniquely weigh on us that just need to be in a space where they don't have to describe it because Mm -hmm. describing it is weighty that in one comment, you just be like, girl, and everyone laugh in a collective understanding of the pain and the weight. And then we come together in tears, laugh and joy, right? And just the community that is bonded through those experiences is incredible. And so just in my invitation to those that are listening, especially in this work, um, in, in this philanthropic space and beyond, is that if if you're traveling the world the world alone, right? If you're if you're on the road alone, there's just a better way of doing it. Absolutely. And I think the more vulnerable you get in the space and tell people what you're what you're dealing with, the more that you will receive back that will help you navigate it more concretely with more strength and courage, um, and you will be rewarded as a result. Absolutely, absolutely. And I I can't not uh, call out my boss, Antoinette Malvo at Casey Family Programs. And you know, she's she's in the book as part of the Seattle chapter, but you know, she was the first person who heard the idea about the book and said, All right, well, what can I do to support you? Right. Um, and that's what she said. We've worked together 10 years now. And that has you have a day job because voice was I have a day job. Day. I have a day job. Yes, I have a day job. I have a day boss. I have a home boss. I have some bosses yes. at home. And that's about yeah. your home boss. And she, and the first boss. thing she said when you told her you wanted to do this is I support you. Yes, I support you. And how can I support you? And how much do you need? Right. What's that last part? How much do you need? Absolutely. So that she was the first person to invest in the idea. And the other thing I will say is when COVID hit and the project stalled, she never came back to me for an explanation of what I was going to do. Right. So the trust in the idea and the vision. And then when this bigger thing got created in the meantime and just has continued to grow and expand. She continues to, you know, tell me she's proud of me, ask me how she can be supportive. um, And to just demonstrate again, right? The being of what philanthropy looks like in relationship to your peers and your colleagues and your partners. You know, she and she doesn't just do that for me. She she is that for so many folks across the sector. And so when I say I've been really fortunate to have folks in my corner, she is one of those. She's one of those individuals for me and for so many, for so many people. Man, you know, I love her. I don't even know her because I hear the stories through you about her. It feels like that's like another book coming up in terms of what effective partnership inside of organizations can look like, because I think that you can seek it and find 
your squad, your supporters, your kitchen cabinet, whatever you call it, your personal board of directors. I think it's it's easy when you can curate it yourself. It's harder when you're trying to find it within institutions. And I think effective partnership and powered relationships where you're reporting to someone, what they look like when they're most effective, when both parties are able to show up and be their, their full selves um, and have both their dreams be realized, I think is something that I am finding across the board people are, are struggling with, particularly after 2020, to your point of all the DEI work that um, really came forward quickly and in new ways following um, the murder of George Floyd, um, to now institutions recognizing that they were aspiring to something that their institutions weren't ready to fully embrace in some cases. Yeah, and and I have to say, there have been some institutions who've been far more transparent in the conversation of not being ready, um, which is interesting, right? And hope, hoping that some of that can get documented in this report in 2020 that'll be released in 2025. Um, what does it look like for you know, white leaders and black leaders to sit down and have a conversation about not being ready? And, and how do you, how do you pump your brakes and sort of recalibrate on the road to readiness as opposed to the, to being ready and now we're gonna do this thing to solve, right? To solve something, and whether that's sort of gender inequity inside our organizations or in our grant making portfolio um, or you know, pay disparity or whatever the thing is um, for institutions to sort of look inward first and interrogate those dynamics and those practices as an institution, because in some in some instances that may be all, that may be the most important work for right. philanthropic institutions to do, right? To again do it, do our best to demonstrate what equity and inclusion looks like from an operations framework, from you know, hiring to recruiting board members to who our vendors are, um, to what our pay scales look like, right? Sort of the distribution of, of compensation where it's often, well, we know what it is in, in, in all sectors. Um, the folks at the top make the most, the folks in the middle make a little bit more than the folks at the bottom, but there's huge disparity. Um, you know, for institutions to just do that work with themselves and inside itself <laughs> could be an interesting movement for the field. One of the other things that, you know, I know, and I certainly have read um, frequently, and maybe I'm getting into the report, but that often those of us that are working inside of institutions, Black people, Black women, are also holding some of that DEI work. So there's both the formal role and then there's the work that other people hold that we don't get paid for or acknowledged um, that we're navigating. Will the report sort of cover? The formal and the informal, the paid and the uh, unpaid labor. Yeah, because you can't separate the two, right? Like in some of these conversations, we'll, 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 women will say, this is not in my job description. This is not in my job description or for those who are contracted, this is not in my scope of work. Whether or not you go renegotiate that, you know, is always a, a kind of tricky situation. But I think whether it's women in the role of DEI consultants or VPs or officers or program officers or grant, like we're always sort of carrying more than we're, we're compensated for or that we're acknowledged for. Because I, I've i said this in, 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 in previous conversations, because for so many of us, this is not about a job. This is about community. This is about resourcing work that is vital to the day-to-day well-being of communities of color and Black people. If I gotta go the extra mile, and that means an extra set of meetings, coaching an applicant, right? Helping to 
helping an applicant build a relationship with another funder because I know I can only support it up to this amount. Um, but my girl over here or my colleague over there is funding the same thing. So let me go facilitate, you know, an, a, an opportunity so that this partner, this grantee, this applicant um, can be resourced appropriately. That's not it. That, you know, that ain't what many folks get paid to do, but that's what we commit to do out of love of community and our understanding of the importance of the work. In my transition, leaving uh, the foundation I just left from, I've gotten these funny text messages where people are like, I know you're, you're, you're probably just chilling right now. And I'm like, no, I'm actually not just chilling right now, right? That there is a difference between job and work. There's a difference between a um, location and a vocation, right? That the work continues. Um, and I think that um, when I think about being in a job and the work that I've committed to do in community, right? And I know this is, is not a unique story. You have, I have my church community and people are, you know, I need some. I have my neighbors where they are like, you know, how I show up in my neighborhood, how I show up around people that are interested the four or five text messages that I've got from my son's friends that um, they grew up with that are interested in starting their nonprofits and they want advice to someone that used to work for me that's interviewing and they need some support as they enter into um, their, their interview process. There's always, for me, a way of giving into the work that feeds impact in community if I'm open to being available to do that work. Absolutely. And what you described in community, your son's friends, your church community, the, the person looking for some coaching around, you know, preparing for an interview, all of that also is happening in our community of women in the philanthropic space, right? Yeah, that's my you point. Can, is that where yeah. you yeah. can be inside a well-resourced institution mm-hmm. and still need, right, some coaching. Because for whatever reason, you know, the, the budget doesn't allow for a woman in a particular position to have a coach or you want to attend the convening, but the budget doesn't allow for you to have access to that development opportunity. And so when I talk about voice, vision, value being a conduit, those are the kinds of opportunities um, that have emerged that I wasn't necessarily anticipating voice, vision, value sort of being a bridge to for women, um, but it's 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 been surprising and it's been meaningful to help answer those calls in the ways that you know help get folks what they need because I think sometimes folks think because we work inside philanthropic institutions we aren't we aren't necessarily struggling professionally with some of those similar challenges that others in community might be facing um, as to resourcing our own development, our networking, or our access to relationships and opportunities that will help grow our own, you know, um, grow and advance us in our own careers or or in our own ideas. Um, Working for a foundation doesn't uh, rid you of those challenges. We could only laugh. We know too much, but it, <laughs> we, we know too much. It is true because there's sometimes just rules that are meant to be fair that don't make a lot of sense. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, and, and it doesn't allow, or you can only attend professional development that aligns with your role defined by person X that doesn't really fully understand the role. Correct. Or right. tell me how this thing is going to advance the work of the organization. Will you going to this conference advance the foundation's work or the sector? They ask some big law. Or the, well, right, and I'm 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 cool with that question, but kind of can we also talk about how it will advance me in my development and in my own goals and objectives for my career or my contribution to the organization? Right, you're sort of it, sometimes you can be erased. What about retention? Sometimes it's just about retention. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. I mean, sometimes you just need 
time to step away in a community of people that are um, in similar roles to address isolation, to support new ideas, to have you feel an affinity towards the work mm-hmm. in new ways, mm-hmm. to feel acknowledged and supported. Like, I mean, there's just so many things that doing that can contribute to. Absolutely. But one would have to value that as a strategy for retention, right? And that's not always the case. Okay. All right. Well, as we move on, um, I have two more questions. One is, you know, in light of, of all the things, and we've talked about both challenges and really the beauty of community and the beauty specifically of the community of Black women supporting Black women. But what what is bringing you hope in the field right now? Ooh, that might be a question for when I come back from sabbatical. Um, <laughs> um, but I think what what brings me hope, Shonda, I, I turned 50 later this month. You know, I've been in philanthropy that's had 23 years. Uh, you know, I'm in a community with you and many other women who are at a certain point of inflection and reflection around um, sort of who we are as, as leaders. Um, and what I'm hopeful around is these conversations about convening and supporting the next generation of leaders, right? The, the lessons that we've learned the the battles that we fought um, and the ways in which we have sort of come to be who we are, being able to design and curate spaces to share that with, you know, mid-career women who, picking up on the previous point of discussion, don't always have access to these spaces to be in community with folks who share a similar experience, with folks who are having questions about, you know, some of the things that they are navigating from a place of vulnerability and that's grounded in sort of truth and and reflection with those who have been where they are. I'm hopeful about that work for Voice Vision Value because there's so much directed to Black women executives or just to executives, right? and these spaces for young women, emerging leaders, they, 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 there aren't a lot of them. And so to be able to, again, scheme and dream about what it looks like to create space, to have these multi-generational points of connection and reflection and conversation is, is what I'm most hopeful about and excited about. Because a lot of there's a lot of transition that's happening. Folks are exiting the field for a lot of reasons. Um, some folks are retiring. Some folks are choosing to just sort of um, move on to other things. Some folks have been asked to leave. Um, but there's still just tremendous wisdom and knowledge in the hearts and minds of, of these women. And so to be able to gather them together, gather us together with the youngins and create some new conversations and some new experiences um, is exciting to me. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Toya, who do you have to be in this work? That is an interesting question. Who do you have to be in this work? I think for me, I have to be Lily's granddaughter and Nellie's granddaughter. I often say my grandmothers were the first demonstration of philanthropy for me, for my family, and for that multi-generational community that included the members of Pilgrim Temple, CME uh, Church, you know, the members of the folks who lived in the John DeShields housing development in East St. Louis, right? So I have to be a demonstration of their legacy and their contribution to our community. And I guess that's a real, a lot of words to say, you just have to be who you are and you, only you know who you are, only you know where you came from and what it took to get here. But more importantly, what your family and folks in community invested in you. And so, because that's philanthropy, right? 
So don't forget who you are and whose you are um, as you navigate these spaces of influence and power um, and these relationships with potentates and dignitaries, right? Like with the potent people. <laughs> you know why I love that answer so much is because philanthropy can often reduce the ways in which black folks and brown people move throughout our community in ways in which we don't call philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we are certainly philanthropic. We don't define it in the same way. Therefore, we remove ourselves from seeing ourselves that way. It is the same thing. So I love that we're honoring the way that we give into community, the way that we will take our last dollars to make sure that the church house, the house next door, and then babies get to where they need to go is part of a legacy of what we have done generationally. Um, And that is how we will always be. And there is a way for us to act in the form of philanthropy differently if we so choose. But it does not mean that we're not contributing into making this community a better place through our philanthropic efforts. Absolutely. Yeah, that I would say you gotta, you can't lose sight of the truth of who we are as a people collectively, but particularly as when you think about the intimate relationships in your family and in your neighborhood, because not everybody has a grandma Lily or a grandma Nellie, but they might've had a Miss Katie across the street or they might've had a Miss Smith in, as a teacher, right? Like I grew up in a community of all black people. Everybody was black and everybody had a role to play in nurturing and supporting me and making sure that I was okay. And so that's who I have to be in this work and in my life, because that's, that's, as Katrina Mitchell sometimes says, that's the rent I pay for being on this planet. And it's, it's, it's paying back what's already been invested in me, whatever my title is, right? And whatever, whoever, whatever your title is for the folks who are listening, who you are is where you came from. And we cannot forget that. We cannot forget that. Thank you, Toya. Rando, the visionary of Voice Vision Value, Black Women Leading in Philanthropy. This is Centering Conversations, a partnership with Miss Toya Rando, Shonda Smith-Baker. We will be back with you next week. You'll be back next week. This is Shonda Smith-Baker, and you just heard from Toya Nash Rando. This is our first conversation with Centering Conversations, a partnership between Voice, Vision, Value, and Conversations with Shonda. Join us again every Wednesday in August and every third Wednesday throughout the year. Thank you again for listening to Centering Conversations.